And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's what, man. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. We're a weekly radio show, podcast, and to make sure that you automatically hear about each episode, subscribe to our show at either iTunes or on the radio page of our website or on whatever device you are currently listening to this show. You, they will have a subscribe button. Just click on that little sucker and you will be able to subscribe to us and hear about each of our new episodes. Today's show, we'll be talking about Im- Im- the, our immune system and our fertility. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the director of Creating a Family. We're a nonprofit providing education and support for both infertility and adoption, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. For many patients, cost can be a barrier to pursuing fertility treatments. That's why Faring is now offering a savings card for their endometrin vaginal inserts. This instant savings card can offer up to $50 savings each month on your endometrium prescription for eligible patients. You can get more information by talking with your doctor. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our twice-weekly e-newsletter. We let you know about the latest developments in infertility as well as the upcoming week's blog topic and show topic. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter at any page of our website, uh, top left side, creatingafamily.org. Uh, and this show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors, including Cryos International. They are a New York sperm bank, which are part of the world's largest international network of sperm banks. Cryos offers donor semen and semen storage services with the ability to ship specimens to more than 65 countries. We also have Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey, where they blend scientific expertise and leadership with patient-centered care. They understand that one size does not fit all and will personalize your care based on your individualized needs. They have seven offices throughout New Jersey and Pennsylvania. On today's Creating a Family show, we'll be talking about how our immune system affects our fertility. Our guest today will be Dr. William Coutte. He is board certified in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. He also has his Ph.D. in molecular biology and immunology. He serves as, a direct, as the director of Fertility Associates of Memphis and lab director of Memphis Fertility Laboratories. Welcome, Dr. William Coutte. Actually, you should say welcome back because you've actually been on Creating a Family before. So welcome back, Dr. William Coutte, to Creating a Family. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here today with you. You know, uh, a while back we sent out a uh, a request to, we have a large, as I mentioned, in fact, we have the largest online audience, uh, uh, networks, I should say, and the social networks in the area of infertility and adoption. And we sent out kind of a, uh, we book by the quarter, we book our show by the quarter, and we sent out a request saying, you guys tell us what what topics it is that you want to know more about. I mean, we're an education nonprofit, so tell us where you're, what areas are you needing education on. And uh, uh, the immunological connections uh, to infertility was the number one choice for uh, uh, for infertility-related topics. 
Uh, and so, as you might imagine, because of that, we have a lot of questions that come in from our audience today. Um, and I'm going to apologize up front. People gave us a lot more detail that I'm going to be able to read for, um, because you know this is we're, we're clear here that we're not giving med- specific medical advice, but we are giving uh, we can make general statements as they relate generally uh, to their to people's questions. So I'm not going to read all the emails in excruciating detail from the from the history. When necessary, I will. Here's one that says, is the immune system connection real, especially as it relates to implantation rather than miscarriage difficulties? What is the evidence that it exists? So how about that for a very general beginner, huh? Yeah, that's a that's a great and I say fundamental <laughs> question. Uh the the basis of that is that based on what we understand about the immune system that every pregnancy should be rejected by the mother's body because half of the markers on all the cell, the HLA markers and the tissue markers have to come from the dad. And so it's been a quandary for immunologists for 100 years trying to uncover what mechanisms actually protect the baby from being rejected by the mother because theoretically according to a lot of the immune theories it should be so the 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 short answer to the question is yes there is something real to the immune system in allowing a pregnancy to grow okay well that i mean that makes sense I and mean, when we think about how strong and she's making a distinction and it's one that i would like to make and uh have you uh expound on between uh different parts different timings during the pregnancy and how the immune system might impact that so her distinctions were uh as it relates to implantation but i might even take it one step back uh even prior to implantation is there any evidence that the immune system affects uh, an actual conception, the, the the joining of the egg and the sperm. Well, sure. Uh, there, you know, before uh, 1996, when uh, we had pregnancies that started being formed through intracytoplasmic sperm injection or ICSI, uh-huh. there was a lot of research done with, for example, anti-sperm antibodies. So, in some right. men and women. Uh, particularly men who had had prior infections or surgery on the testes or scrotum, particularly vas deferens if they'd had a tubal ligation and then a reversal, many of those men developed anti-sperm antibodies. And although they had plenty of sperm, they were covered with antibodies that were unable either to move properly or unable to penetrate the egg. So, yes, there's there's evidence that uh, the immune system can impact getting pregnant. Now, as a practical issue, we don't worry about that much anymore because we have methods that bypass that that obstacle, and that's injecting the sperm directly into the egg. So, so now, and so, a man who has had a vasectomy reversed might be at a higher risk for having. Oh, fifty percent or more are going to have high levels of of anti sperm antibodies because normally sperm never are exposed to the blood circulation. So the it, it's, it's just like a bacteria or something. Your body's going to see it, respond to it, and form antibodies and try to fight it off. Well, you know, if that's the case, and it makes me wonder if uh, if a man has had a vasectomy reversal, but right. the, does that mean that, that when that, that uh, couples who are doing that reversing, 
need to expect that there's a 50% greater chance that they will have to have uh, IVF with ICSI in order to conceive? Absolutely. When we're in that situation in our clinic seeing a couple, we will run the tests for anti-sperm antibodies first. And if it's positive, we'll say, you know, maybe you shouldn't spend your time and money on the reversal because that same amount of money can be spent doing in vitro and will probably result in a pregnancy rather than spending it then finding out, oh, the sperm were not functioning, oh, we've got to do in vitro anyway, then you've you've really got the worst of of that situation. So we'll yeah. we'll run that test first before we uh recommend that a patient go and have a reversal done. And 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 it is possible uh, just for our audience uh, to know which they they some may and some may not to get sperm uh, from uh, the testes without having without having to reverse the vasectomy. Is that correct? Absolutely, uh, okay. a very good point, Dawn. So whenever we have that attempted uh, vasectomy done here in Memphis, we always send one of our lab staff over to the operating room and we ask the doctor. Go ahead and aspirate some sperm. Let's uh, prepare it and freeze it for a couple reasons. Number one, if the vasectomy reversal is not uh, doesn't work, if it fails or it scars back down, then they don't have to, the patient does not have to go through a whole other procedure to get sperm retrieved. So at the time of surgery, at the reversal, it's a simple procedure. Just go in with a needle or a little biopsy instrument, repeat, retrieve some sperm, and freeze it down. But that all should be planned in advance of the uh, procedure to to do the reversal. Boy, that's a, yeah, that's for sure because you're exactly right from a from an economic standpoint. Absolutely. Um, and actually, just from a uh, from a logical standpoint, because after I know of a number of people who have had a subsequent vasectomy after they finish their uh, child, they no longer want children the second time around. Uh, which is kind of nuts, and to go through it twice if they're going to have to do, um, and I think the, uh, if they're going to have to do uh, IVF anyway. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, interesting. Um, here's another question: what uh, what what do we mean by natural killer cells, and are they real, and how do you test for them? Yeah. Um, natural killer cells. So first, we've got to see what what the name means and what it stands for, and I think there's a lot of. Uh, confusion, uh, <laughs> yes, misinformation in literature, not only for patients and but for doctors. So natural killer cells are cells that are naturally produced in our body. They were first identified in patients that had uh, certain types of tumors, and these cells were found around the tumor cells, and they were dubbed natural killers because they were white blood cells that were were quote-unquote, trying to kill the tumor. So they were called natural killer cells. They were thought to be cells that defended the body against uh, cancer in the original description. Subsequently, in women that were having miscarriages, some of the same cells were identified after the pregnancy had been declared non-viable. And so some... Uh, clinicians and investigators said, oh, this is the reason that the pregnancy failed, is these natural killer cells have gotten programmed and they're attacking the pregnancy. So a very attractive idea. 
and out of that have developed many unnecessary therapies that have taken years to develop enough research to refute. The first was uh, taking husband's white blood cells, processing them, injecting them into the to the uh, future mother that had natural killer cells, repeatedly doing these injections at significant expense in order to immunize the mother to respond against the father's antigens on his white blood cells. And this was theoretically going to help improve uh, the, the chance for pregnancy. And this was done extensively in the United States until... Several studies were done prospectively, you know, randomized, blinded studies that showed absolutely no benefit. So in the U.S., this type of treatment was banned, and only situation that it could be performed is if it was in a registered, prospective, controlled study. It's still done. Patients go to Canada, they go to Mexico and have it done, but there's no basis in the literature for, for having it done. Uh, another treatment that came out of this, once the white blood cell uh, immunotherapy was uh, pretty much banned by the FDA in the U.S., was intravenous gamma globulin, also known as IVIG. So when the uh, clinics that were using the white blood cell immunotherapy could no longer do it, they then switched to IVIG. And same thing. It took 10 years before enough studies were done. Uh, we actually participated in one with uh, Dr. Mary Stevenson, who's now in Chicago, a seven-year study. Mm-hmm. Women who had miscarriages were screened for every other possible cause and were then randomized, blinded. I didn't know what they were getting. The patients didn't know what they were getting. And they would get monthly infusions of IVIG, And at the end of seven years, we broke the code. We looked at the results. Absolutely no difference in the women who got the IVIG or who got the saline. And so, uh, again, I think there's a lot of misinformation. Uh, We know that patients who are infertile and patients who've had multiple miscarriages are desperate. And when uh, patients are desperate, Mm -hmm. they are vulnerable and are subject to... uh, treatments that may not be proven. Yeah, I think you're correct that that, uh, the desperation absolutely leads to vulnerability. Here is a question. I'm going to read a little bit of the background for this one. Uh, She says, I am thrilled that you'll be doing this show. In fact, I have now had two failed donor embryo transfers, each with two excellent embryos and a great-looking uterine lining and I am desperate to get some answers for why I can't achieve even a chemical pregnancy. Not once in my 13 years of trying to conceive have I ever had a positive pregnancy test. We always wondered if the problem was with fertilization or with implantation, and now we know that it must be the latter. So, and she has a number of questions. The first one is is a fairly general one, but I I think think, a lot of people wonder this as well. Why are so many reproductive endocrinologists, infertility doctors, resistant to the idea of the Immunologic implantation dysfunction. Yeah. Um, I I would say I don't think, to answer the question, I don't think they're resistant to it. It's just that, you know, uh, physicians are scientists, and physicians go through lots of training. To become a reproductive endocrinologist, 
at a minimum, you've got four years of medical school, four years of residency, and three years of uh, fellowship training. So you're looking at 11 years of training, and all that training is based on knowledge, studies, research, trying to develop treatments that are going to be safe and effective. And so this whole area of immunologic treatment is lacking in evidence that would convince most physicians that there's a benefit to the therapy. And so it's not a resistance. It's it's just like, uh, you know, laetrile for cancer. You know, there are people that went to Mexico and got laetrile treatments for cancer because there was no other treatment available that would help them, and they were desperate. And, you know, eight years later, we knew that it had absolutely no effect, but maybe they had a placebo effect, and they felt better because they were doing something. So that's the main impetus right now in the U.S. and and elsewhere for some of these uh, types of therapies. Well, is there are there, uh, say for somebody, as, as our questioner says, who is wondering sure. if... Mm-hmm. There is a uh, she's tried uh, obviously with uh, with no treatment. She's tried IVF. Uh, uh, I would assume with ICSI between her, her and her husband. I believe, although I'm not certain, I believe she has tried donor egg and now she has tried donor embryo. Uh, right. And and nothing has so far. She's not uh, been able to conceive at all. Uh, and so for her, is there any form, would that lend you to believe that there might be a reason to test her immune system to see if something is up? Yeah. So the question becomes, what what tests can predict uh, the future? You mentioned natural killer cells, and a lot of people will order those tests. Uh, the problem is that the natural killer cells that are measured in the peripheral circulation, so you draw a blood sample and you measure them, are not the same population of cells that populate the uterus. So the first thing is, yes, you can draw the test, you can send off results, and you can get a result, but the results are meaningless. They do not correspond to the population of cells that are in the uterus. So that is a completely you know, useless test. It's a, mm-hmm. a waste of time. It's a waste of money, somebody's money, either the lab, the insurance companies, the patients. And there has not been a single treatment that is shown to be beneficial whatever that test result is. So, I mean, I have patients every month that come in and say, I want this natural killer, I want an embryo toxicity test. There are a bunch of tests that have been developed, and I tell them, fine, I can order the test, but uh, to the best of my knowledge, and uh, I've been told I'm the only Ph.D. immunologist in the country who also has uh, board certification in reproductive endocrinology, I said, to my knowledge, there are no treatments that will make any difference, and none of these tests will predict outcome. So when we have tests like that in medicine, we usually don't do them. You know? Well, let me ask you, is there a way to test for the natural killer cells in the uterus? And if there is, there, is there any advantage to, to, to knowing it? Because, you know, is it going to make any difference? Yeah. Great, great question, Dawn. So... So you've got uh, one group, of, a small group, I'll say, of individuals in the in the U.S. who who really promote the natural killer cell theory, uh, heavily promoted on their on their websites. They attract patients from all over the country who are desperate. Uh, you can go online and type in your clinical scenario, and they'll 
generate a list of tests that you need to have done. So what scientists have done, what researchers have done, is said, okay, let's develop some studies to determine if these natural killer cells really are a significant factor. They developed a strain of mice that did not have any natural killer cells. So they genetically bred them so they did not have natural killer cells. And the prediction was, okay, natural killer cells are bad. They are destroying the uh, pregnancy. And if we get rid of the natural killer cells, then everything should be fine. There should not be any miscarriages and, and everybody would be happy. Well, these mice without natural killer cells were found uh, not to be able to have any successful pregnancies at all. And so subsequent studies have been done in uh, women who were having pregnancy terminations, so not losing the pregnancies on their own, having uh, elective pregnancy terminations. And when the pregnancy was removed, they looked, and lo and behold, natural killer cells were found to be a natural component in a thriving pregnancy. Not a pregnancy, not only a pregnancy that was being lost, and so now those cells, if you don't have them, you cannot develop a normal pregnancy. So there's actually some good features, and the name is the only problem. The natural killer cell name <laughs> is is where a lot of people get hung up. It's a very appealing name if you want to believe that this thing is attacking your pregnancy or, or making it hard for you to carry a pregnancy. It's not but a particularly attractive name for You're right. If you're thinking about it being a yeah. bonus to a pregnancy, it's not... But but to answer a question, there there is a wealth of evidence that shows that that these tests and these treatments do not have any impact at all on implantation, and despite that, uh, patients are still desperate and patients are still willing to try experimental things, and I think that's the current situation that we're in. So there is a need for tests that prove that these therapies work. That's what there's a need for. Yeah, well, or, yes, or uh, and, and are safe. Um, Renee asked a question that, that would be relevant right in here, and it says, uh, she asks, I've heard of the Chicago tests being referred to for immune testing. What are these tests? Yeah, well, Renee can go online and look them up. Uh, but they're these same things the natural killer cells, antithyroid antibodies, embryotoxic assays. Uh, as I said, uh, uh, a group of physicians, and, and she mentioned one group uh, in Chicago, has, uh, I would say, promoted this group of tests successfully uh, to patients who can't find answers. And we know in medicine that every disease unfortunately does not have a cure every problem does not have a solution uh, but now with the internet uh, everybody probably Dawn including you and me when when we have a problem we turn to the internet first oh you're darn right and, and, and we <laughs> yes. look it up and uh -huh. so uh, you know my father uh, is a physician he's in his 90s and definitely he's not practicing anymore but you know we used to talk and you know in 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 his days of practicing medicine, you just tell patients you need this and it was done. That doesn't happen anymore. Patients come in with 
with uh, their printouts from the Internet and why aren't you doing this and why haven't you done that. And so you have to be very knowledgeable about all these things. And for a lot of doctors, it is difficult. This is a difficult area of medicine. Uh, it's it's hard to understand. There's a lot of controversy, and it's hard to keep up. And uh, so we find that patients are going online, finding these uh, promoted websites, and asking to have these tests done. Uh, and, and I have the patients, too, and I tell them, you know, those folks – uh, they know something that we don't know, you really need to go up there and get it done. Uh, because I don't believe in the tests. I don't have any evidence that show the tests are of value. And I don't have any evidence that any of the treatments that have been recommended are effective. They're expensive. They uh, have some potential risk. And they're not effective. So if you believe that's a good treatment for you, you can't ask me to give that treatment. If I, with all my effort and training and research don't believe it's effective, that's not a doctor being resistant. That's a doctor using their training and knowledge to try to direct the patient in the right way. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, that is, uh, you're, you're so right that we live in, and it's not just as it relates to infertility, it relates to all forms of medicine. Everything. We We live in a time where things are different now, which is one of the reasons that, uh, gosh, I guess it was in 2006, 2000, I guess 2007 when we started creating a family, that we made the decision to be online because the reality is that's where people are and there is a dearth of of, of medically accurate information online. And uh, and that's what we try to do is we try to provide. So I completely understand where you're coming yeah. from because the reality is people, nor do I think people should give up. Uh, seeking out information and support online. I think that oh, that is actually it's a good thing. But uh, absolutely, but, you know this the the blog uh, my blog this week was on the uh, New York Times op-ed uh, article. I guess it was the article actually came last week on um, our infertility clinic selling a fantasy, and that was the, um, the, the 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 topic of my blog this week. And I, I and it, the the this is a little off topic, but it as I was reading the article the op-ed and and thinking about it there is this the 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 belief that just because someone says something that that we are all uh, necessarily going to we all we would have to believe what they say but also the fact that from and from a from the infertility clinic standpoint there's probably more evidence of success that's publicly available than in most areas of medicine oh yeah i mean we're, we're the most heavily regulated and monitored area of medicine uh, that there is. I mean, just yeah. just you know, we have uh, uh, inspections by the FDA, by College of American Pathologists, by CLIA, uh, by CAP, and by state. And and these are uh, inspections that occur at all times. And any of the and and SART. <laughs> uh, yeah. So any and of the, the and active labs, you know, they it's just a part of life. You're chronically being overviewed and supervised by somebody who's who's checking every detail about how you you operate it's a lot of scrutiny but well and, I, and I, but and your success rates are apparent for all to see and there i mean there, we just did a show on analyzing the IVF uh, clinic success rates CDC yeah. and SART and there's some, yeah. there are some ways that they can be manipulated and we did talk about that but the reality is they are online and yeah. they're easy to find and as opposed to many areas of medicine where I guess that would, to put it mildly, not be the case. But, 
you know, you went off a little bit. I'll go off. It's just like the, you know, the college rankings. So now I've got a son who's getting ready to go to college, and one of the rankings that, let's say, U.S. News and World Report uses is how many applicants do you get based on how many you accept. So what colleges are doing now, and I know this because it's happening, they'll send you letters or emails, oh, we're waiving the fee, you don't have to write an essay, and yeah. just fill out this one-page form, and we'll consider this an application. And if you fill this out, you're guaranteed to get a $3,000 scholarship. Well, these are from colleges we've never heard of. And so what they're doing is they're man- managing the statistics. They want to show a greater number of applicants because that makes their college look more prestigious. The mm-hmm. same thing is happening with IVF. Most patients look at the number and they say, oh, their number is 3% higher than yours. They must be better. Well, they may be better, but in many cases, they're better at managing their statistics. And mm-hmm. we hear some clinics, and you, you talked about it on your show, they have people that that's their job. They screen mm-hmm. out patients with certain unfavorable factors so that their statistics look better. And I think most consumers are not aware of this type of manipulation. It's the same with these immune factors. The studies you need to look for are prospective, are randomized. So uh, somebody goes to a website, they want to talk to a doctor, ask them, show me the studies where this treatment or this test has been studied in a blinded fashion so that the doctor didn't know who had what, the patient didn't know who had what, and the treatment or the test really made a difference in their outcome. I think if the if the consumers would ask those questions, they'll be very interested in hearing the responses. From from yeah. From um, from the people a, that are promoting it. Here is another question uh, that I'm gonna go ahead and read some of the details. Uh, hopefully I don't screw up the uh, pronunciations here of the medications. <laughs> but uh, I do it because she raises a, a, a very good question uh, at the end. She says, I went through immunological testing, which cost over $1,000, and mm-hmm. with the results, my doctor recommended a double dose of intralipid as well yep. as a course of Humira during my next cycle. Together, mm-hmm. these drugs would have added about 3500 to the cost of the cycle and a lot more if we succeeded in getting pregnant since I would have to continue with both through 12 weeks gestation. These drugs were in addition to the aspirin, clexane, and prednisone regime that I was on for the first two cycles in which this clinic seems to use as standard protocol for all their patients. Right. Uh, she has two questions. Well, she actually has a number, but how effective are these drugs, which may be hard to answer, but the one that I particularly wanted to, to focus on was how safe for the fetus. Uh, which I think comes to something you were talking about earlier, which is so we get test results, what are we going to do with them? And anything we do in a pregnancy, one of the primary concerns is how safe is, especially if it is a a, a medication treatment, how safe is this for the mom and how safe is it for the fetus? Uh, so are you familiar with any of the drugs that she mentioned? Sure, sure. It's a great and very typical question. Uh, and and situation. So here we have a patient who has failed treatment. Uh, I don't know what her treatment was, but it didn't work. And so now she's had some special tests done that she said cost a thousand dollars. She's had uh, treatments recommended. Uh, Umira, which is a, a an FDA approved medicine, it's an anti tumor necrosis 
uh, factor alpha treatment that was originally used for certain types of melanoma uh, and a very effective medicine for that along with intralipid. So what has happened, Dawn, is this. Uh, you have a group of tests that are unproven in their effectiveness. On top of that, you have a group of treatments that are unproven. Gradually, the scientific community gets concerned about these treatments and tests for safety of their patients and also for cost. So what has happened? Well, these groups first recommended white blood cell immunotherapy. It took 8 to 10 years for enough data to be developed consistently, repeatedly, that showed that that was not effective and may have some potential risk for the patient. FDA banned it. What happened? The group said, okay, we're going to switch to IVIG, intravenous gamma globulin. Same thing happened. Eight years later, ten years later, uh, worldwide studies showed, you know what? This stuff is probably not effective. Blinded prospective trials. So what happens? They switch to intralipid. So it's a moving target. It's the same group of people that are coming up with different treatments. Now, using Humira, an anti-tumor necrosis uh, factor that's FDA approved, is added to intralipid, and it's just another iteration of the same thing. So there are multiple problems with, with, with what's going on, and it has to do with tests that aren't validated, treatments that aren't validated, and patients that are vulnerable. And we see this cycle repeated over and over. This patient spent probably unnecessary over $4,000. That evidently had absolutely no benefit. The The problem is, and, and I, I, I'll say, I could take one of my patients and tell her, okay, uh, you will improve your chances of implantation or you will decrease your chances of miscarriage or whatever the situation is, but here's what you have to do. You have to come to my office building at high noon and run around the building three times, you know, in, in your bikini every day, and that's going to improve your pregnancy rates. You know what? Half of them would do it. And so you take those same vulnerable patients and you say, you need to buy this, you need to do these expensive tests, you need to take this expensive treatment, and you need to take this experimental medication. And if you do that, your chances will be improved. And many of them will do it because they want something done. We want somebody well, and, and to fix our problem. Because, well, and nothing else has worked as well. And, and nothing if, else has worked, yeah. yeah these, we these want somebody to have, do something. They've not had success with the traditional uh, IVF. Each of the people, I would assume, who's written in, certainly the ones that I've read you know, their question in more detail, um, yep. have clearly not had success uh, with anything else. So it, to a certain extent, it's why not, uh, assuming that money is, is a... Um, um, is is an, is not an issue, you know. At the at the, uh, uh, at the uh, outside of the show, you talked about that we know that that our immune system plays a role in pregnancies because the the fetus is a foreign body. At least half of the marker cells would be foreign. Um, sure. So something is happening um, with our immune system to allow a pregnancy t- to continue. So from from your perspective, is there is there any evidence at any stage in a pregnancy that mm-hmm. something in the woman or the man's, I suppose, 
immune system is affecting the ability of the woman to conceive, to implant, or to grow a pregnancy? I would say there has to be, Dawn. There, there has to be, and we just, we just don't understand what it is. But there has to be a mechanism, and you know, this developed a whole set of uh, tests and theories too. Uh, one of the early theories was about uh, suppressive antibodies, so antibodies that formed that that in the simplest way to explain it that blocked those uh, foreign uh, receptors from the dad, so that the mother's immune system did not recognize and attack them, or the immune system was suppressed in some way that it didn't respond during pregnancy. And it, it's a it's a very attractive idea uh but no one has been able to pinpoint exactly how how it works and so i think many groups are trying to do that many groups are trying to understand but this has been going on for a long time i mean this is not something that developed in the last 5 years 10 years 20 years this has been a basic fundamental question about reproduction that is not understood it's not understood how this happens and why the the fetus is not rejected but we all know that it does now i think all these uh patients that have questions are saying well is it possible that something breaks down in that system and i would say absolutely just like any system in the body there's things that can break down and things that can be fixed the the problem is at this point in time in uh 2013 we don't understand how this system works, and we don't understand how to manipulate the system for a more favorable outcome. And and I think at their heart, the, the people that are doing this are trying to do good. Uh, I, I know many of them. I've talked to them. I've debated them at conferences. And I think in, in the bottom of their heart, they're trying to help people. But... Uh, I think it would be best if they if they initiated and did some of the studies and got new data to prove this so that all of us could use the treatment and say, okay, this has been shown to be useful, this is effective, I can quote this study, I think it's worth it for you to spend this extra money, I think it's worth the risk of this treatment, and, and then move forward. But unfortunately that hasn't happened. Well, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine Conference is coming up next month. I will be yes. there. I'm, I, will you be there? Yes, I'll see you. Good. Okay, uh, yeah. Well, we will both be there. Uh, do you happen, which, which of course, uh, it's uh, it's like putting me in a, a kid in a candy store, uh, yeah. because I I very much uh, well one of our missions at Creating a Family is to uh, bridge the gap between the research community and the patient community. So it's a great place for us to learn about uh, research that's going on, which begs the question, what research is going on in the area uh, of uh, the immunological connection, um, either, well, either either that which might be presented this year, but also just any in general that you know about? Yeah. Well, at, at this year's uh, conference, there's actually uh, several sections that will be highlighting, you know, new developments. There's a new uh, special interest group called Early Pregnancy that deals specifically with a lot of these questions that uh, that many people have, including the ones that have emailed you and called in. It's called the Early Pregnancy Special Interest Group. 
and that group will have a number of presentations looking at different markers that people are studying. And, you know, this is the way that medicine advances. Somebody does a small pilot study and says, we think this, you know, has something to do with implantation failure. And as soon as they put it out on the table, guess what's going to happen? Everybody's going to go back to their place and either start doing a study or testing it. And when we come back next year, we'll find that either people have confirmed that or they haven't. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the scientific method. Um, but there is a, a reproductive immunology uh, special interest group that will also be uh, looking at any new treatments. And that's the forum where I think people should present their data, you know, whatever it might be, whether it's uh, intralipid or Umira or natural killer cells. Uh, it needs to be presented in a in a scientific forum where it can be discussed, where it can be challenged. The unfortunate thing is, is like many things, it's presented directly to the patient who doesn't always have the knowledge, training, and skill to accurately judge, is this worth it or not? Is this beneficial or not? Is this safe or not? And then out of those forums should come a uh, recommendation. Yes, do this. It's good. No, don't do this. Or we need more data. So I would say focus in on those two sessions uh, as to where you'll find the latest. I'm going to be moderating one of those sessions this year. I haven't... uh, I haven't gotten the final list of what's going to be presented, but those will be the places where uh, this type of news is going to come out and develop. Are there any big, long-term, you know, double-blind, the, the gold standard type uh, 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 research that's being done right now that you know of? I'm not aware of it. Um, Nor you know, am I. With, I haven't heard with, of it. With studies now, most of them do have to be registered in advance if you want to publish them. If you want to publish a study, you need to register them, and there's several ways you can register them. Uh, with uh, most of the journals, you can register them. And that way, they're available to the public. Anybody can see what the study is. Anybody can determine if they're eligible for the study. And that's both for patients and clinicians' advantage. Uh, but I'm I'm not aware of, of any that are ongoing right now. Um, here's a question we just got via email. The woman asks, um, Lisa, asks if there is, uh, in your opinion, is there ever an indication that high-dose steroids would be effective at, uh, and, and in her case it is a pregnancy issue, uh, maintaining recurrent pregnancy loss, but she asks both for recurrent pregnancy loss, miscarriage, as well as for implantation. Yeah. Uh you know that's that's kind of a specific question there are some there are some reasons that high dose steroids are used and they're beneficial uh there's certain autoimmune situations uh, uh example that quickly comes to mind is a patient that has uh systemic lupus erythematosus a well-known characterized autoimmune disease that can result in you know organ failure kidney shutting down uh and be very serious uh, in that situation, in a pregnant woman, high-dose steroids are one of the most effective treatments that there are for her. But right. I'm in, assuming that she does not have, she, the way her question was written, she yeah. doesn't have a diagnosis of anything. That's right. So then you have to say, okay, what are the 
potential advantages of high-dose steroids and what are the potential disadvantages of high-dose steroids. What information do we have on the use and the safety in women who are pregnant? And we do have some information on that. When you or I or anybody takes high-dose steroids, these are very nonspecific medications. They shut down not only whatever uh, we're trying to shut down, you know, if it has something to do with implantation, theoretically, but we also shut down uh, the rest of the immune system. And the immune system is critical for our just regular health maintenance. So when Absolutely. somebody's taking high-dose steroids, you, you run that risk. You're definitely more prone to infections. You're more, more prone to uh, permanent adrenal gland suppression. The adrenal gland is a little pea-sized gland that sits on top of the kidney that is critical. It has to produce the, the building blocks for all the hormones in our body. And if you take high-dose uh, prednisone for long periods of time, the signal can sometimes go to the adrenal gland. The adrenal gland goes to sleep, and sometimes it doesn't wake back up. And so now you've got somebody that absolutely has to have this, and it can have long-term consequences. Uh, we've talked about the infection, uh, uh, bone loss, osteoporosis, osteopenia. We know that. And this was used in uh, women and men that had anti-sperm antibodies. So you can go back in the literature and say, okay, this type of therapy was used for another immune disorder. And what happened to those women? Uh, some of them had uh, osteoporosis. Some of them had infections. Uh, but what didn't happen was that it was repeatedly uh, shown that it was effective. never happened. It never showed in the studies that it was a beneficial effect. But it did show that there were some side effects to the medicine. So uh, what she needs to do is go back, dig a little bit more, go back and look and see what are the, the negative side effects of high-dose uh, prednisone and then decide if she thinks those risks are worth taking against the uncertainty of any possible benefit because she's going to be the one who's taking them. I mean, mm -hmm. that that's what I would tell her if she's my patient. I don't know the reason it was recommended, so I can't really address her issue specifically, but I would say that she needs to think long and hard about high-dose steroids for any period of time unless she has some clear medical indication to take it. Okay, here's another question. I have struggled with Candida, and I'm hoping I pronounce this right, Albicon? Mm. Yes. Candida yes. Albicon's yeast for a long time and cannot keep it under control unless I have an extremely rigid diet for months at a time. The longest I have ever been truly healthy was for about four months. Unchecked candida has been shown to cause cellular damage and make endometriosis worse, and I do have endometriosis. Has there been any research done connecting candida infections with reproductive immunology problems? I have a strong hunch that they may be connected in my case. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, your questioner is very astute. So uh, people that have, uh, she's she's probably, her whole body is colonized with yeast. And many of these women, the, the cause is that they've had uh, chronic antibiotic treatment for something. So I don't know in her case, but you know, uh, an example that I know is a, is a patient who has, uh, 
you know, calling for infections, vaginal infections or irritation or she's given antibiotics and this happens repeatedly. She's given more antibiotics, more antibiotics over months and years. And what happens is the normal bacteria that colonize not only the female reproductive tract but also the intestinal tract are eliminated and mm-hmm. they're repopulated with uh, abnormal, the candida. Uh, it's probably her entire intestinal tract that is colonized with candida when we see it chronically in the in the reproductive tract. And she is right. The largest component of the immune system is in the intestinal tract. It's not in the lymph nodes. It's not the spleen. It's the pyre, what's called the Peyer's patches, which are a collection of lymph aggregates that line the entire uh, intestinal tract. It's the biggest component of the immune system. And many people believe, and there's strong evidence, that if your intestinal tract is abnormal, you know, another example is Crohn's disease, where people have chronic intestinal problems and autoimmune symptoms would be an example, that their immune system is off. And and I think she may be on to something there. Now, what uh, what direct studies have been done? None to my knowledge. None to my knowledge. And but she's so right in assuming there could be a problem. For, for a person who has... Their, the the balance of bacteria in their yep. gut in their in their intestinal tract is off. Um, what can you, they do to get it back uh, populated uh, in, in a healthy way? Yeah, great question. So first thing you have to do is stop taking unnecessary antibiotics. Before any antibiotics are taken, there should be cultures or swabs or something to see exactly what it is that's being treated. Whether it's a sore throat whether it's a vaginal uh, uh, sensitivity, whatever it is. The second thing is uh, uh, probiotics. Uh, You know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we would have people eat uh, active culture yogurt, Mm -hmm. not pasteurized, not sanitized with lactobacillus. Now, look, I mean, every time you flip on the TV, somebody's talking about this yogurt and that yogurt. If you've got constipation, if you've got diabetes, you're repopulating your intestinal tract. Um, You can buy probiotic capsules in the pharmacies that are, you know, have 6 million or 6, you know, of lactobacillus and different Mm -hmm. uh, normal Bacteria, so you have to go through a regimen of repopulating your intestinal tract and your reproductive tract with the normal bacteria. But it can be done. It takes time, but it can be Is done. Is there any one pro- probiotic uh, that has been tested, or that you uh, the ones uh, the typical ones that are sold? Are there any one that you would recommend over another? Oh, uh, I I can't give you the name of anyone, you know, right now. I I certainly could look it up. But, you know, active culture yogurt is great if somebody likes yogurt. Now, you don't want to – you need that, you know, not with the honey syrup and the strawberry and all the stuff dumped in it that typically we do. You need the plain active culture yogurt is probably the best single thing and daily – and continue that, and you can recolonize and repopulate, repopulate your intestinal tract. So for somebody who likes yogurt, that's the easy way 
Okay. Uh, so that would if be If not, right. you know, I would go in the store and talk to the pharmacist say which one of these has got the most active culture, but you want to look lactobacillus is a is a big component of the normal uh flora that we need in our intestinal reproductive tract. So you certainly want one that has uh uh good populations of lactobacillus. And most and they all will tell you what the the bacteria yeah, you flip is on the back them. of the bottle. I yeah. mean I, uh, last month I was in there looking at some for I don't know what reason uh just to see what the different ingredients and they'll tell you this one's got two million of these and two million of that and two million of the other and everybody's trying to distinguish themselves as a little bit better or a little bit more than the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're exactly right. And there's a lot of them out there. And there are um, more of them out there, yes. Yeah. Here's a, uh, a question. Recently there have been some articles in the mainstream media suggesting a connection between immune system disorders in a mother and autism. What is known mm-hmm. about this? And is a woman whose immune system is known to be more active than average putting her future child at greater risk for autism if she persists with treatment. Yeah. I would it was an say, article in the New York Times, I believe, yep, that's what she's referring yeah. to. My answer would be I don't know. You're taking two things that are not completely understood, autism and the potential role of the immune system on it. And there are people that are studying this, but of any direct connection, I'm not aware of it. That doesn't mean it's not there. I'm just not aware of it. You know, there's so many um, interesting reports now, but not supported by much really strong research on causes for autism. And I think perhaps right. similar, for similar reasons, uh, people are desperate for answers and they're looking for connections. And thank goodness, I mean, we'd like to know what the connections are, but it's uh, it sure seems to be a bit of a quagmire when you're trying well, to tease out a cause for something that complex. You know the whole deal with... with uh you know, immunization, childhood immunizations, and the and the person who put out the thing that said uh, mm-hmm. certain childhood immunizations are associated with higher uh, frequency of autism. Mm-hmm. And you know, again, it took uh, ten years before that was shown not only to be a false report, but some of the data was fabricated. Now. That what happened? What was the negative effect of that false information? Was that many children were not immunized and vaccinated with the normal uh, vaccinations that are recommended during childhood because their parents, good intentioned parents, saw these reports and said, "I don't want my child to have that because I saw the article that said it may be associated with increased risk for autism." So. Uh, and it led to increases in certain childhood diseases that we thought had been eliminated. Mm-hmm. So all of these things that are uh, ideas and thoughts, again, I'd say they need to be presented in the proper forum, the scientific forum, but with 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 all the outlets for information, you know, nothing is held sacred anymore. It's going to be on the front page of the paper. And we as consumers have to be able to try to digest the information and understand what are the special interests from this story coming out and who has to benefit from this. And you just have to be a very, you have to be a suspicious and a careful consumer is what I would say for all these things that we've been talking about. Immune testing, immune treatment, you have to do your homework, you have to read the articles and not just the first page, you have to dig down and read the second and third and fourth page. 
and you have to start looking at the quality of the studies. How big were the studies? How many women were treated? Uh, some of these things started with four and five women, and, a, and a, almost a case report came out. And before they could be accepted, proven, refuted, whatever, everybody wants it done. Oh, I read the report. Two women benefited. Let me have that treatment. So we're too anxious to get the answer and the quick solution and are sometimes, I think, uh, not paying attention to the potential long-term risks. And that's the part that I, I always think it is worthy to to say is that it, with every treatment, there is with almost every treatment, I, I should probably qualify it, there are downsides, there are risks as well, and we have to be wise consumers of saying whether something is worthwhile assuming the risk. I mean, there's, a, of course, the financial risk, but there could also be more than just a financial risk. There could be a, sure. a risk to the mom. Uh, one of the, the issues with in this op-ed article that made me think of it when we were speaking earlier um, is women who go through 13, 14 rounds of IVF. Yeah. There's a risk associated with that. Yeah. What we don't know necessarily, but it, we we have to be, uh, uh, and I think as consumers we can sometimes demand just do something, darn it, you know, uh, whatever it is, just do something because what you're doing is not is not working. On the other hand, we do have to be uh, wise consumers of what it is we're demanding. It's all that's, that's. I think it's a perfect point. the The hardest thing to decide in, in in any of this, whether it's pregnancy loss, whether it's implantation failure, whether it's infertility, is at what point is it reasonable to say, I have done what I can, I have done what's expected. I need to move on, and Mm -hmm. my life needs to go on. And uh, your example of 13, 14 IVF cycles, I remember the first patient uh, lady that moved here from the Northeast, and she walked in, and she'd done 14 cycles of IVF. And I just looked at her, and I thought, well, she was going to talk about uh, donor eggs or adoption. She wanted to do another IVF cycle. And I said, look, I said, I've never heard of anybody who's done 14 cycles of IVF. Something (laughs) You know, and and I said I know the doctors that you went to. I know their clinic. This is not some little country backwoods group. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, oh, she cussed me up one side and down the other. She said I mm-hmm. came here to do IVF. About a month later, and you know, her problem was she had a lot of money, and it was easy to take that Visa card and just keep using it. Mm-hmm. But nobody had ever told her this is very unusual for somebody to do 14 cycles of IVF and not have a pregnancy. There must be something going on that medicine does not know how to answer. And mm-hmm. do you, what is this doing to your health? What is mm-hmm. this doing to your body? Uh, what what else in your life is suffering because you've got trapped in this circle of continuing to do this treatment? And I guess she'd never thought about it or she pushed it out of her mind. A month later, she came back and was very apologetic and said, nobody had ever told me this. Mm-hmm. Nobody had ever told me this might not be healthy for me and my body and the stress. And mm-hmm. so I think well, the heart... not just the stress, but the amount of... You know, those, the, the ovulatory stimulating drugs are... The injections, the retrievals, everything. Right, and, yeah. Uh, you know, and that's hard for a doctor to say because it differs mm-hmm. for every single patient, and it's always a patient judgment. Uh, and some people will do something once, and they'll say, that's all I can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a patient once, and I know we're running out of time. 
she had had 23 miscarriages, came into my office. Oh, Lord. And she wanted me, and she'd been to some fine doctors. And I said, uh, you know, she asked me questions, and I asked her a question. I said, how is it that you can continue trying to get pregnant? I said, I am certain if it was me, I wouldn't have the willpower or the stamina to do this. And she just was convinced that she was going to have a baby. And she ultimately did. I have a picture of her baby in our office because it's incredible. 23 wow. miscarriages. So yeah, but when most we hear people stories stop like that, for that. Yeah. Well, and the problem is that it takes that one story. I hear this all the time in our support group. Right. It's that one story of after 24, you know, the 24th was it. So it, right. You know, and then that just keeps you going. It keeps you going, which yeah. because we want it so bad. Let me take a moment right here to thank another one of our gold sponsors and to remind you that it is through their generous support that we can bring you this show uh, and all the resources provided by Creating a Family. Fairfax Cryobank has been a leader in sperm donation for over 20 years and is dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. Only one in 200 applicants make it through their screening process to become a donor. And one last thing, if you have enjoyed our show and want to help us grow, and we would like for you to help us grow, please take a moment to rate this podcast on iTunes. Go to our radio page, creatingafamily.org slash radio, and click on the iTunes button. It will take you to the page that will allow you to rate this show. And uh, it's a star rating, so you can give us a star rating. And if you feel particularly magnanimous, you can write us a uh, a brief uh, comment that will help others as well. Thank you so much, Dr. William Coutte, for being our guest today on Creating a Family. If anyone wants to participate in a discussion of this topic, uh, on the, the topic of this show, check out my blog tomorrow, creatingafamily.org slash blog, and we will carry on the discussion in the comments. To get more information about Dr. Kute or on his practice, you can go to their website, which is fertilitymemphis.com. That is fertilitymemphis, all one word, dot com. Thank you so much for joining us today, and I will see you next week. And now, an ad from Dad. All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's what, man. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> all right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's what, man. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations.